You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westbca.com. Let's turn to the book of Judges, chapter 10, reading major portions of this part of Judges, chapters 10 and 11 and 12, which concern the raising up of the judge Jephthah. Reading first, most of chapter 10, beginning at verse 6, we're going to read different parts as we go through this sermon. So please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Jephthah chapter 10 at verse 6. Hear God's word. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. This is the reading of God's word. Be seated, please. Our Father, we pray that you would give eyes and ears to hear that we might understand your word Apply it to our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This evening we are looking at God's great deliverance or salvation of Israel through Jephthah, one of the judges, one of the deliverers raised up by God in this book. We're going to look at this section under three main headings. The first is God's great compassion. The second is a rejected and despised Savior, and thirdly, an an incomplete salvation. The first point we look at is God's great compassion. And this point is from this first portion of this text that we just read, read, where we read an introduction that reminds us of many other portions of the book. This is leading up to the point that we'll see Jephthah being raised up by God. And we find this extensive portrait of Israel's idolatry and sinfulness. For those of you who've been listening to this series for the past nine times, this is like a broken record playing the same portion of music over and over again, isn't it? But this time it seems to be even worse. Verse 6, you could 
paraphrased by saying, this time Israel really, really, really forsook the Lord. The author piles phrase upon phrase about how they served all these foreign gods. And so the Lord disciplines again. Verse 8, we see the Ammonites come and shatter and crush the Israelites. Such descriptive words for the oppression they experienced. And this time, it seems that the Israelites go a little bit beyond their usual crying out to the Lord. We've seen that phrase, crying out, over and over again. And we've seen that it doesn't mean a crying out in repentance. It just means crying out in misery. But this time we find in verse 10 that there is actually a confession of sin of sorts. They say at the end of the verse, we have sinned against you forsaking our God and serving the Baals. We haven't seen much of that in the book up to this point. So they confess their sin, but it's interesting that in verses 11 to 13, God replies and essentially says, I saved you time and time again, and I'm not going to save you again. Reminds me of the little story I heard as a boy, the boy who cried wolf. And we all know, if you heard that story, that he calls wolf a couple times and all the townspeople come out to help him, but it was just a joke. He just wanted to see if they came. So sure enough, the real time the wolf comes, he cries wolf. And nobody comes. In fact, God says to them in verse 14, Go and cry out to your gods and let them save you. But of course, the Israelites know that their gods won't save them. And in verse 15, they say, Do with us whatever you think best. But I like the way it's put. But please rescue us now. (laughs) Whatever you want, Lord, but please, now. And in verse 16, they even get rid of the foreign gods among them. What are we to make of this confession, this repentance? Is it sincere? Is it real? Well, certainly we can't know for sure. But my reading of it is probably not very sincere. Maybe a little. It's too much like a foxhole conversion. For those young people who don't know what foxholes might be, it's the, you know, in World War II, the troops, and maybe they still do this in places like Iraq, they dig holes in the ground that's called a foxhole, and you hide in there, and it's, but when you're in there and enemy bullets are whizzing over your head, you can suddenly become very spiritual. Lord, save me. It's like, Those prayers when life suddenly goes very bad and somebody prays to God and makes a deal with God. Lord, I'll make a deal with you. You get me out of this mess and I will serve you the rest of my life. I guarantee it, God. I'll do everything that you want me to do. Of course, if they're saved out of that, that kind of repentance is not real normally. And soon they're back to their own old ways. That's not the nature of true repentance and faith. That's really playing games with God. It is true that God is going to deliver Israel. We'll see it here in chapters 11 and 12. But it is not because of the depth of their repentance, whether or not it's real or not. It is not deserved by their repentance. In fact, the reason is given to us at the end of verse 16. And he, that is Yahweh, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. We need to let that phrase sink into our hearts. That description of the heart of God, the compassion, the mercy of God, not in the face of his people's belief 
and their repentance and their godliness, but this is in the face of their sinfulness and what they deserve in his judgment. The reason is God's great compassion. God's grace is never deserved. It is never merited by the sincerity or the depth of our repentance or our faith. And, of course, even our our faith and our repentance, our gifts from God. But God's compassion, his grace, is the wellspring of salvation for the Israelites and for you and me as well. And praise be to God that that is the nature of God. He was moved by their misery, and he delivers them. He is a God of compassion. The second point we find from our text is a rejected and despised Savior. We pick up the narrative in verse 17, and I want to read part of chapter 11 as well. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mitzpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went up to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. Jephthah is a rejected and despised Savior, and in that way, he points ahead to Jesus Christ. Notice these circumstances surrounding Jephthah being raised up by God. We find in verses 2 and 3 that he's an illegitimate son of his father, And he is rejected by the sons of Gilead, who are sons of Gilead's wife. And he's driven out from them. And he settles in this land of Tob. We don't know exactly where that is. But it's interesting, the description in verse 3, that he settled uh, there and a group of adventurers gathered around him. You can imagine that that group of outcasts was not a particularly upstanding group. You didn't learn your fine social graces from them. But he's out there with these men. It reminds me of David when he's fleeing from Saul and a band of brothers begins to surround him, outcast from society, and he forms a militia with them. So as the story unfolds here, the leaders of Gilead find themselves between a rock and a hard place. 
The Ammonites are pressing upon them militarily. They need a military man, a warrior who can lead them. And there's no one to be found except they know that Jephthah is living in Tob. And so they go to him, hat in hand, would you lead us? Well, he says, why did you kick me out if you want me to do that? And they make vows to one another, and he becomes the leader. Well, an interesting story. Isn't it amazing how God uses unlikely instruments? We saw a few weeks ago how God was pleased to use the weakness of Gideon for his glory. And he used Gideon, the weakest of all the clans, the smallest, the the, uh, least among the sons, uh, for his own glory. And the Lord purposed and reduced his army from 30,000 to 300, that famous story about how the Lord did that, so that no one would boast before the Lord. Well, that is the same kind of thing we are seeing here with Jephthah. Reminds us again of 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul writes, Not many of you were wise by human standards or influential or of noble birth, but God chose the weak so that no one would boast before him. And he's doing the same here. Some of you may have heard of the great pastor Alexander Wyatt, well-known pastor of Free St. George's Church, Edinburgh, in the late 19th century, an outstanding preacher, writer, educator. No one would have guessed that when Janet Thompson brought him into the world, born out of wedlock in 1836, that he was going to become such a man of God. But that's the same kind of thing. But the primary application with Jephthah here is that this point shows that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus was that stone that the builders rejected. Jesus, we're told in Isaiah 53, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and suffering. Jesus Christ is the greater Jephthah, the rejected and despised Savior to come. And the incarnation that we've heard these beautiful songs about, Jesus Christ coming, God stooping to love us and to save us, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, willingly took on human flesh. And Philippians 2 says it so well. Being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The eternal Son of God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being obedient to death on a cross. Jesus did not come to accomplish salvation with the trappings of vaunted human greatness. He didn't come with military power or political power or wealth or human charisma in that sense, but he came in lowliness, in weakness. He came as a seed to fall into the ground and die. That is the nature of the incarnation and the cross. And that is... The glorious truth of the gospel, that is what you and I need. Such a despised and rejected Savior who was willing to go to the cross for you and for me to pay for our sins. We who were enemies of God, but Jesus was willing to be despised and rejected for you and for me. 
And I ask you tonight, have you placed your trust in that despised Savior who was vindicated when God raised him from the dead and is now seated at the Father's right hand? Have you placed all your trust in him to cleanse you of your sins? Jephthah points to Jesus Christ. Well, our third point is that this was an incomplete salvation. Two tragedies mar the salvation that God brought about through Jephthah. You maybe know Jephthah and his story primarily from one of these. It's a very famous one. And these tragedies overshadow the victories that Jephthah was used by God to bring about. And they remind us that full and perfect salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Jephthah brought an incomplete salvation. And let's look at these two tragedies that marred the victory that Jephthah was instrumental in bringing. We're skipping over to near the end of chapter 11. We're skipping the long letter that Jephthah wrote to the Ammonite king, arguing and making clear why this land was truly Israel's and why this king had no right to it. And we're not going to take time to look at that. It's a very interesting letter that uh, we could take time in, but we're looking at verse 29 and following of chapter 11. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Note as I read there, what is the main emphasis of this passage? Maybe we wish that we could have a fuller description of the battle. We've seen some parts of Judges where those things are pretty exciting and they rivet you to the text. But here, the battle report and the the story about how Jephthah and the Israelites were victorious over the Ammonites is only in a verse or two. It's very brief. And the main emphasis of this section is Jephthah's rash vow and the fulfilling of that vow and the sorrow that swallowed up the very victory that had been won. What happened? Well, some 
commentators argue that Jephthah's vow was really that his daughter would be celibate and given to the Lord's service in some way. But I don't believe that that argument can be made. It's very clear in my mind that Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord, a human sacrifice. And nowhere do we read that this pleased the Lord. Nowhere do we read that this was commanded by God or that Jephthah should have done this in any way, but it is what he did. And it is a great tragedy that overshadows the very victory and salvation that God brought about through him. The other tragedy is in chapter 12, the slaughter of the Ephraimites. Let me read that to you as well, and then we'll briefly see the application of this. Chapter 12, the men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called you, called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in the town of Gilead. What a tragedy this is as well, isn't it? We see here that after the battle with the Ammonites was over, then the Ephraimites, one of the strongest tribes, came across the Jordan and they were very upset. And we've seen them upset a couple of times. We saw earlier that when Gilead had great success, oh, he had to do all kinds of diplomacy to calm the Ephra- Ephraimites because they were upset that they weren't in the battle and you know getting all the glory. And here they are again. We're not surprised. They cross the Jordan and meet Jephthah and berate him for not asking for their help because their pride was hurt, we, we see. And he answers them very clearly that he had summoned them, but they didn't come. And so a battle breaks out among the very brothers of Israel, among these Israelite tribes. What a tragedy. Jephthah wasn't nearly as diplomatic as Gilead was, as Gideon was, and he solved the problem the way Jephthah thought this problem should be solved, with force. And then there's this very sad use of another word. It's interesting. Both these tragedies resolve around words. One was a vow. One was a password. One was a vow made out of excessive zeal. One was a password springing from excessive pride. And so the Ephraimites straggling back across the Jordan have to go across the ford, say Shibboleth. You know, and they can't say it because the the way that they were raised. It's like saying 
to a New Englander say, park the car. Park the car. You know, they wouldn't be able to say it right. Or someone from Western PA, what's that water out there running in the grass here? That's a creek? <laughs> no, it's a creek. Ah, shoot them. You know, that's, that's what they did. My wife and I were trying to think of what's a central Pennsylvania thing, and I'm a Pennsylvania Dutchman, and I couldn't even come up with any, but if you think of one, tell me how the strange ways that we pronounce things. But this is what they did, and 42,000 of the Ephraimites were killed. What a tragedy. What a grief. Overshadowing the great salvation God has just wrought, that the tribes of Israel would be so divided. God gives the victory But there is the grave of Jephthah's daughter. And there are all the graves of the Ephraimite militia. From excessive zeal and from excessive pride. You see, it was an incomplete salvation. And really, that's the very nature of the salvation that every judge in the book of Judges brings. Every judge is incomplete. Every judge has feet of clay. And all these judges look forward to one much, much, much greater than Jephthah, much greater than Gilead, much greater than Samson. They point to the Lord Jesus Christ. They point to Emmanuel, God with us. And how fitting that in this Advent time we reflect upon all the Old Testament foreshadowings of Jesus Christ, the the only one to bring a full and perfect salvation. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 7. He says, Now there have been many of those priests, speaking about the priesthood, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Praise the Lord. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What's happening in your life these days? Maybe great hardship, maybe great sorrow, maybe great temptation. If you belong to Jesus Christ through faith in him, do you hear the application of this complete salvation that Jesus Christ has given us in himself? He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Praise be to God. What a great and perfect Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. May all your confidence and all your hope be only in him. Let us pray. Father, we are in awe of the greater one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, the one who would take away our sin. The one who would prepare a place for us, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for that perfect salvation that you wrought through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and that you will bring to completion when he returns in glory to be rejoiced in and all his saints. Father, we pray that you would give us a fuller taste of that in this life now, that you would help us to rest more completely in him alone and in the midst of of our hardships, of even our joys of this life, which are passing, that you would help us to to cling to Jesus Christ alone and to live very close to the cross of Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.